He started sending notes to her mother and friends and family. He even went to her work and wrote on the bathroom stall for a good time call. And how she found out is that someone actually called, called that number. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Happy to have uh, TK Logan here with me today. She's a professor in the Department of Behavioral Science, College of Medicine, and the Center on Drug and Alcohol Research at the University of Kentucky. And her work focuses on stalking, sexual assault, and intimate partner homicide. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. As we go through these topics today for everybody, the goal is uh, to understand the emotional burden that this takes on individuals who experience stalking and other uh, sorts of partner crimes. And I also want to talk about how substance use uh, can play a part in this as well. So, but first, what what got you interested in this field? Well, it's kind of a long story. Um, I started out studying um, crack users on the street, and as I talked with lots of the women who were using crack, so this was, you know, back in the 90s where crack was a much bigger deal than it is right now, um, I just started hearing more and more stories of violence by the person that was supposed to care about them, love them. And some of the women even talking about never really knowing a relationship that wasn't um, violent. And so that just really spoke to me. I guess for me, what drives me is our experiences that people don't feel like they can really talk about very much. Um, they kind of get shut down when they talk about these experiences or people don't understand. Or um, So for me, research is a way to give voice to people um, who's... Um, suffering is silenced, basically. And I think most of us have heard the term stalking, but could you give us kind of a, a brief understanding of exactly what that is? So stalking is the, the easiest definition that you could use. It's just it's a course of conduct, so two or more acts directed at a specific person that induces fear or concern for safety. So it's it's just an ongoing targeted pattern of behavior that creates fear or concern for safety so um in in the person being targeted and where i think this becomes really important is when you think about someone in a domestic violence situation we always ask the question why doesn't she just leave um often though women do leave or they attempt to leave um but he doesn't always let her leave or leave her alone. I think the better question would be, why doesn't he just leave her alone? So what happens is as she's getting out of this relationship, he continues. Um, and I am using he or she. Certainly men can be both victims of stalking and domestic violence, so I don't mean to minimize that. We just know that women are more frequently, more women are um, domestic violence victims or stalking victims. However, too, stalking can be with with coworkers, acquaintances, and stranger stalking happens. We hear that a lot with celebrities, but actually it happens a lot in, with regular citizens. It just doesn't get the media play. And I think there's a misunderstanding 
about stalking. You know, movies and books and fiction make it out to be, I think, like a peeping Tom type scenario. But uh, reality is a lot more, a lot different than that, isn't it? Um, yeah. So peeping Tom is probably, I would put that more in the category of a potential sexual predator. But yeah, stalking is just um, basically targeting this person 24-7. And, and I always ask people, what do you think a stalker, what do you think the intention is? Do you think it's violence? And it could be. And, you know, the vast majority of women who were murdered by their partner were stalked beforehand. So definitely there is that component. It can it's lethal. It's a risk factor for lethality. And in fact the FBI uses stalking as one of their red flags risk factors when they're looking at the problem uh, behavior for politicians or other um, celebrities and things like that as well. So it we know that is a high risk lethality factor. But even underneath that, stalking is harmful, and it's not just about violence or assault. It is really about ruining um, a person's life. What are some examples? I know following them around and kind of making sure that they, you know, they have control of their lives. But what are some other examples of stalking? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's the following. Um, there's harassment of friends and family. There's listening in on people's private or what they think is private conversation. There's forced confrontations and lots and lots of unwanted contact. So, you know, people will talk about being called 200 times um, in one day or just multiple messages. And I mean, that alone, I mean, part of you is like, well, what's the big deal? But being on the other end of that, you can't use your phone for anything. You can't call anyone else. You're afraid to pick it up. I mean, it just, and what ends up happening is every part of your life now is infiltrated by this stalker. So I'd like to say, like, um, your total life experience is disrupted. One victim talked about going to bed for a walk to a movie, such ordinary things, unless you're being stalked, then everything feels risky. So it is really just the complete infiltration of privacy um, and uh, of your total life, of your home, work, friends, family. And often there's a threat in that, which I haven't really talked about. I mean, there's a threat of harm both to the to the person being stalked, but to the person's friends and family as well, and so as well as to the reputation. So I think that's an interesting gender difference. So men can be stalked. They often fear less for themselves, for their own safety compared to women, but they worry very much about their children, their partner, um, and their reputation. So it's just that, again, the goal of the stalker isn't necessarily violence. It is really to ruin someone's life. When these, the, the stalkers, uh, since most of, uh, I don't want to say most, but a lot of them are with the, the partner that they're with. Is that accurate? It's typically, it's, it's ex-partner. Okay. Now, d d when they look for their partner, and that's not the right way to say it, but do these people look for someone that they feel is weak and susceptible to their behavior going into the relationship? So that's a good question. Um, I personally think anyone can be 
cross paths with a predator and that some of our predators, some of them are very good. And also I always think about we're not always strong in every aspect and, and throughout every journey of our lifetime. And so you can be vulnerable. Um, I have a, a case study from Louisville that I like to talk about. She, um, her husband, she had, was with her partner for her husband for like 18 years. He had died of cancer two years earlier. Where we pick up her story is she's at a yard sale, neighborhood yard sale. It's a beautiful spring morning, and she crosses paths with Drew. And he really likes her. She's a beautiful woman, and he kind of follows her around, and he's funny, and he's charming, and he gets her phone number, and she she's not really ready to date, but she did give him her phone number, and then he called her for the next couple of months, kind of like, hey, let's go out, you know. So she ended up going out with him. They only dated for a few months. And then she just realized he was really obsessive about her time and moody and kind of controlling. So she broke up with him, but he didn't want to let her go. And that's when he kicked up the stalking, things like following her, um, knocking on her door for hours. At all hours, she would hide from him, um, uh, parking across the street and just watching her house uh and just and and then and once she ignored that he would kick it up he started sending notes to her mother and friends and family he even went to her work and wrote on the bathroom stall for a good time call and how she found out is that someone actually called <laughs> called that number but about uh it was about Two or three months after she broke up with him, he ended up killing her. Wow. Unbelievable. Does it escalate from stalking often into physical violence? It's around, on average, between 50 and 60% of those being stalked are assaulted. And if it's a partner stalker, and again, I don't want to minimize, there's acquaintance stalking that happens a lot, neighbors, coworkers, classmates in college in particular is another. So you don't have to have had a relationship for this to happen. And it depends on your age group as to which, you know, who's more likely to do the stalking. But an, an ex-partner stalker is more likely to threaten, threaten with gun and assault than an acquaintance or a stranger. But all of those definitely um, have and do assault and threaten. On to uh, partner crimes separate from stalking. How does this normally, how do these relationships and behavior normally start? Control. So um, even if um, the person seems like the most loving, caring person in the world, um, they can, I think the biggest red flag to look for is starting to control your privacy or freedom. And the, the, the weird thing about that is, you know, a lot of times, especially when you're young, that's sort of normal. You kind of sort of isolate yourself from your friends and family because it's all about this person. And, um, and so these kind of develop in small ways um the but i you know and and we don't really know and it's a little bit different for everyone else but mo 99% of these relationships do not start out violent because if they did you would just walk away um it starts out more like the best you know courtship um normal or maybe even a little bit elevated in terms of 
how great this person is and um but then over time, you know, certain roles that control it can be control about how you express your feelings, your negative feelings. Are you allowed to change your mind? Are you without the other person punishing you or getting angry? And so, you know, you can go years in these relationships before any physical assault. And some, some a small percent of these controlling abusive relationships don't have any assault. The key, though, is that um, the person on the end of the control, also there is, there is a threat or concern for safety um, if you were to defy the other person's wishes. So there is a consequence. Does it then move into, you know, after the the happy phase and then some control naturally turn into the abuse part of it, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, and then ultimately physical abuse potentially? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the trajectory, although not every relationship, it's not like it fits a recipe. And then so some be, some um, some partners can be controlling about time, job, how much time you spend in the bathroom. Others might not care that you're out with your friends, but they want the house a certain way. I mean, so there's no, um, and if whatever the demand is, is not met or um, how they express their, the, the consequence for that can, yeah, maybe it's verbal, maybe it's, um, maybe it's physical, maybe it's, you know, in some other way, threats to other people or threats to ruin some, I mean, it can, it can just be a variety of ways. But yes, verbal abuse tends to be part and parcel of that. You definitely want to degrade and humiliate the other person. That's a great way to keep control of somebody. And you talked about how it does happen with males. It's, it's far less often, but what, what does that stalking or partner crime look like on that flip side with men being the victim? So for men, I think it's harder for male victims in, in a lot of ways because the services are set up for female victims. So I think when they reach out for help, if they reach out for help, I think even whether it's people close to them or the services, it's just there's a lot of stigma with that. There's a lot of misunderstandings about what that looks like. And so whether the partner is, you know, I do think, you know, certainly domestic violence happens between same-sex partners too, as well as is heterosexual. Um, so I think it looks similar, but I just, um, I think where it's it's much harder uh, for male victims is to get that understanding, support, and ability to in, in services, basically. So talking about stigma, as far as when somebody reports a stalking incident or partner crime, do you feel that they're oftentimes not believed or think that they're false reporting or for attention or anything like that? I think I, I think that definitely happens. I do think, though, often that what happens is more minimizing um, and, you know, minimizing it. Um, so the victim can be very scared or, um, and, and they'll start to relay the story. And the stalking in particular is very hard because it's a lot of small tactics and it's hard to pull back and look. You have to understand the bigger picture of stalking, how they're related, why it creates a threat. And, you know, people don't necessarily know how to ask the right questions. And so it's just very hard when someone says, well, you know, 
this is actually true case, but let's say, you know, every day I wake up, there's a scar on my doorstep. And the cops are like, so? Well, where that's meaningful is that after, you know, he raped her, he smoked a cigar. And so he knows exactly what that means. She knows what that means. It's very scary to her. And um, But anyone from the outside is looking at that thinking, well, yeah. I mean, it's probably annoying that someone's coming around your door every, you know, every night. But and those are the kind of bizarre things. Or two, I think sometimes stalking can look coincidental. So you really just have to sit with someone and pull back and ask those, you know, those bigger questions about what's what's going on and make some of those connections. Sometimes those who are being terrorized are so emotionally kind of paralyzed or they they don't even know where to start. And there's usually a lot of stuff that's happening before they even call the police. On the the topic of law enforcement and reporting, you've done some research on protective orders. Like what were you looking at when you did that? Well, we were just sort of looking at how effective are protective orders. And what we found um, was that Half, and we did only have women in in that study, but half of the women who got a protective order, regardless of whether they lived in eastern Kentucky or central Kentucky, urban, did not experience a violation after that protective order. And even among those who did experience a protective order violation, they had significantly reduced violence and abuse. Where we did see a problem is those who were stalked before that protective order was issued were more likely to be stalked afterwards, and it was those women who were being stalked that experienced the biggest violations, you know, the greatest number of violations and and not great enforcement of that order. But so for the most part, those all it took was that protective order to help a lot of a lot of people. Children witness significantly less incidents between parents. Women who were being abused, who saw the violence go down, used less substances, less illegal and, and alcohol use at the follow-up. Um, so there were just there's a lot of good to come from that reduced abuse and violence. Are a lot, or, or there a percentage of people that are reluctant to do so? reluctant to make that phone call and and ask for uh, a protective order? There are a number of people that are reluctant, and that's okay. I mean, those protective orders are there when you're ready to make that decision. I think the bigger concern for me is that um, it's actually hard to get help for, for pretty much anything. And so to get that protective order, you have to be persistent. There's a lot of gatekeepers that are pretty negative. A lot of several of our, our women that got protective orders, because we only looked at those women who actually got the order. So I don't even know the full story of the women who at, tried to get one or what, were unable. But several of the women who went specifically, their partner was stalking them, and that's pretty much what they talked about at the time. So this was a few years ago. Our laws have changed since that, but. Um, I mean, they were very negative, like, oh, you can't get an order for this, for this stalking. Um, so it just you, you just have to be so persistent and just be able to kind of get through these neg- the negativity from the gatekeepers, the court clerks, or maybe a police officer, maybe even a judge is negative. I mean, even if they grant the order, they can be negative. And it's, it's just embarrassing and humiliating to go, and now you're publicly saying what's, what your partner, this person you chose, what this is, you know, turned out like, um, and having to talk about your details. Maybe you're scared. Now you have to go and face that person in court. 
and you have to admit to that person you're scared. So, I mean, there's just a lot. It takes, you know, I have a lot of admiration for anyone who has the courage to ask for help like that. Definitely. It's probably a level of ignorance and stigma when you get those responses from people, whether they're gatekeepers or attorneys or judges. A lot of people, you know, it's got a negative connotation. People want to stay away from it. They don't want to address something like that because it's it's uncomfortable for, for everybody. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I think, I don't know, I kind of... I think we always do that when someone's sexually assaulted or, or um, you know, it's interesting to me when someone's robbed at a bank, we never say, well, what were you wearing? Why did they choose you instead of Cheller next to you? We assume it was random. Um, but when we talk about sexual assault, we're always like, well, what did you do? What, how late were you out? What were you wearing? Um, and I think you know, I don't really know why we do that. I think part of it is self-protection. We don't want to believe we could be vulnerable to something like that. But yeah, we tend to, instead of focusing on the criminal behavior, we definitely tend to focus on the victim behavior and and we're much more blaming. (laughs) So as these things start to happen early on in relationships or activity, what are some of the emotional responses and the, the distress that plays out? Well, it's Oh, I think there's all kinds of things that go on, you know, and, and I think in a lot of these relationships, just like with every, I think relationships are just difficult to begin with. And to be in a relationship, I think you create this story, you know, this sort of narrative in the beginning about, otherwise I don't see how anyone could get through a relationship because it, it, even normal relationships with no abuse, you don't always treat each other nice. You don't always like each other every day. You don't. You know, the person hurts your feelings. So how do you get through that? You get through that by saying, going back to the story that you created, like, this is the person for me. This is who I've married. This is who I've chosen. I know they really love me because I have all these, you know, indicators in the past. Well, I, so I think that story keeps a lot of relationships together that, that you've created. And I also think that's why when you leave any relationship you're invested in, it's a loss. You're mourning. It's it's hurts to do that, even if you're the one choosing to leave, and certainly if you're not the one choosing to leave. But when you have abuse, I think that story, that love, you've chose that person, you care about that person, you know that person is bigger than just the abuse. So that narrative, I think, keeps – it's confusing, Um but also we have to remember, you know, it could be both parties um, came from perhaps child abuse or other kinds of abuse experiences. So you've got that going on like, well, it's not as bad as this, or maybe that's all you've ever known is controlling. Maybe your your father was really controlling, and so that's what you're comfortable with, and that's what you're into. Um, you Maybe you're like, well, I haven't been to the hospital, so it's not really abuse. Um Maybe you just hope that person can change. A lot of times, you know, that person does feel bad for the way they acted and they apologize or say they'll go to treatment or whatever. And a lot of times that doesn't, you know, pan out. Those are empty words, but you don't always know that in the beginning. Um, I think you have children or other considerations, um, so maybe those are some things going on. I mean, you know, all of us stay in relationships that are probably not healthy or good for us, for our children. We make those sacrifices. So do domestic violence victims. Would you say, because so much, oftentimes, childhood trauma causes 
havoc in adult life, whether that's uh, emotional, you know, mental health, substance use, all kinds of things. Would you say that there's a percentage of the you know, people that get stalked in, in these kind of crimes are more susceptible to that? No, I don't. I don't know about that. Maybe. Um, I don't think we have a good answer. But I also think what we forget is that there's a lot of people with difficulty in childhood and abuse and trauma who turn out to be police officers and they, you know, they've taken the other side of this or really outspoken, um, like, I want to change the world kind of um, things. And, uh, you know, I, Gavin DeBecker, I don't know if, any, if if you're familiar with who he is. He wrote this book called The Gift of Fear, um, and he does uh, protection. And so his, he's got a childhood history of that. I don't know if you know Trevor Noah. I just read Trevor Noah's book, and he also um, has a history of, of living through and, and watching his mother be um, – assaulted uh, by a stepfather and, and his own childhood trauma. So, I, you know, I think we dismiss some of the positive um, things that people do and overcome with their life. And just, I just don't want people to get the idea that just because you experienced this as a child means that your, you know, your journey is, is pre-written. To, to kind of flip this, I don't know if you researched this side of it, but what goes on in the mind of a stalker? I mean, do, do you get into any of that with, you know, you know, is this, is it a mental illness? No, not as far as we can tell. I think there's a, a lot of, you know, and I think it depends. Who are you, who are you stalking? So if we're talking about those who stalk politicians or celebrities, yes, that is a mental illness. And they, they're delusional and, and maybe paranoid and they tend to be, you know, overall less violent than, um, your acquaintance or, or certainly your partner stalkers. Um, now, part of that, I think, is because celebrities and politicians can afford lots of protections and lots of distance to, to keep that, the stalker far away from them. Um, but we don't know that. for I mean, we don't know for sure. Um, but a partner stalker, I think that you are, you know, a, a, an acquaintance stalker, it could be, a similar, like, I really want this relationship, and they're not really understanding how they're, you know, what this behavior has turned into. It could, is it like gambling? Is it like an addiction? Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, we don't have the answers. I do think partner stalkers, um, who, when they were, you know, controlling and abusive in the relationship, so I always say, why would someone be controlling and abusive in a relationship? What are your thoughts? It seems like it would become an addiction of some of some sort you know an obsession because i'm in recovery for uh alcohol and cocaine addiction and it you know there's the control level and it uh, the dopamine in your in your mind and you know pushing things to the limit and getting more risky it just seems like that so having that power yeah and it, it just becomes such a such a compulsive need to like it would get worse over time to the point, I think often it does, that it just gets out of control and, and, and bad, things, bad things happen as a result. But I also think there's, there's some practical things you get as well, like 
the house clean, you know, not having to do any housework, having everyone run around and take care of your much. It's all about you. Sure. And you, you're, you're making sure it stays that way. You get sex on demand. You get food on demand. You get laundry services. You get the status of being a husband or a partner and a, and a father without any of the sacrifice. So when those women leave, no, you don't want them to leave. You want them back because you want all those benefits back and not to diminish what you said, you know, this a feeling of power at home where you're, you don't have that maybe elsewhere in the world. So, but yes, I mean, I just don't think we, and also don't think all abusers think what they're doing is wrong. It's their, um, they may think that they're smarter, that they're protecting their partner by controlling everything and, and dictating how they should act and behave and feel. Um, they may feel entitled. They've been hurt and that's, her job to take care of them, um, and they may be dependent. It's called red, so uh, righteous, entitled, and dependent. You know, and there's sociopathic, narcissistic behavior, and it's kind of like Pavlov's dogs. You know, if you do something or act a certain way, and you and you start noticing over time that your partner or whoever starts to take it, and they take it every time, that could flip something in their mind like oh well i can i can do this whenever i want and it just escalates like you said into a laundry service and food service and not having to do anything for yourself where you know the control starts to take over yeah i think that's you know that's a very good point that they do tend to be to be able to get away with it and the and interesting a colleague of mine who actually wrote this book called coercive control um and he just kind of breaks everything down, but he always says that because of the gendered nature of the roles, which we continue to buy into, that housework is women's work and, and what women are required to do, that the society sort of colludes with the abuser because the control tends to be in those in those areas. Talking about a little bit of data here, uh, so you have a website called coercivecontrol.com, is that right? I do. Okay. So so I was looking at that and also looking at kind of an older uh, report from it was 2011 of victimsofcrime.org. But anyway, I, I want to talk about lethality. And so femicide looks like, you know, what I read, 90% of women who, re, uh, who die as a result of these crimes have been stalked or physically abused, at least in the past 12 months prior to their death. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what what the studies show. Yeah, do a lot of cases go that far? No, fortunately, you know, uh, a fatality is um, is a rare occurrence. Although I just saw uh, a, a news report today. There's a report out of Louisville, and I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Said about 40 women die in Kentucky a year from partner partner abuse. So I don't know if that's, unfortunately, we, we have really bad numbers. We don't even know. We don't have good um, surveillance on, on these numbers. So it's, it's hard to know. But it is, you know, overall, it's a rare event. Why do you think that is, that, that, you, that you can't get good data? I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think that it's so surprising in today's time that we don't know. We can't track we track for heart you know heart attacks and other kinds of things i don't know i don't know 
maybe we're not that interested. It's women. Yeah. I think a lot of women just go missing too. I don't know. On the f- the flip side of lethality, are there are there cases or any sort of uh, number of cases where the abused the victim kills the partner? Absolutely. And the interesting about those trends over time is that women killing their abuser has gone down as we put money into resources um, for women or alternatives where shelters and hotlines and other kinds of financial resources to give women options. So this has benefited men in a lot of ways or, or those abusive partners in a lot of ways. So that those numbers have gone down over time, but it absolutely still happens. However, the the number of men killing women has stayed pretty stable over time. It hasn't it hasn't changed. As it gets further into it, and people are uh, victims are absolutely immersed in this bad behavior and bad relationships. What are some of the emotional things or manifestations that start happening in their lives? Well, so there's there's typically a lot of isolation, there's shame, humiliation. Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about what kind of might be an impetus to leave? Right. So I think it's also important to understand that the way we talk about these relationships or emotional is that um, is entrapment. So women become entrapped. So it's not just this partner necessarily that's keeping her trapped within that relationship, but does she have other options? And a lot of times, even if if I sit here and say, well, you have these options, she doesn't always feel like she has those options. So maybe she's called the police before and the police told her, if you call us again, um, we're going to arrest you both. You're both going to jail. And that might, now that's an option off the table for her. And this is particularly an issue if the couple um, is substance involved. Um, Maybe they have don't have health insurance. Maybe they have children and they're worried about um, child protective services or they're worried about the children being alone with the father for visitation for safety and they feel like that's their only ap- option. Maybe there's family pressure to stay together. Maybe there's religious pressure to stay together. So there are multiple factors at work within these relationships. There's you know anxiety, depression, uh, isolation, uh, and a lot of people use substances, drugs, alcohol, uh, food, the list goes on to deal with these things. So, so in particular, how does – you've done a lot of work with substance use. Is that just separate research on your end or is there a, a correlation with these two? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, trauma, sexual assault, um, partner abuse, stalking that substance users have experienced, both men and women, actually higher rates than the general population. Um, You know, substance use is interesting. It is another layer of entrapment. Um, If you're, particularly if you're dependent on the abuser, so that, you know, part of how you control someone is you make someone dependent on you for what you need, your basic needs. And if you're a substance user, it could be, you know, that addiction and he's got that control and what do you, how are you going to get that when you get out and can you afford it and or can you go into treatment and a lot of times the abuser will sabotage any kind of um, substance abuse treatment attempts or, or willingness I mean a lot of times they like that person to be addicted and so there's that piece of it as well 
also, you know, substance use, alcohol and, and drug use is great for, you know, self-medication of emotional and physical pain. So it can be cyclical as well. That's interesting. So, so, so you're saying not only because when I saw that, I'm thinking how to uh, how people cope with this getting out of a, a abusive relationship or a stalking situation. But you're saying that these predators or partners can dangle drugs or alcohol as a carrot to to keep them in a relationship or, or keep them uh, sub- subdued. I guess. Submissive. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. It's terrible, but it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, okay, so kind of winding, winding up here. What are some important warning signs or red flags that we can all be aware of? So again, I think you know anyone who's trying to isolate you, discouraging you from talking to friends or family, or or doing other things to try to you know keep you monopolize your time with consequences, you know, negative consequences if if you're not doing what that person wants. Um, other controlling, um, you know, I kind of sum it up as living polar opposite to your needs, values, and, and wishes. When you are, are having to be so accommodating to the other person that you're losing who you are and what you are. I mean, that those are some big red flags. Any kind, time you're concerned for your safety or afraid, that those are some big red flags. Here's another one. You feel like you're walking on eggshells or you just never know how that other person's going to respond. You feel like you're being programmed or feel like a, a robot. Um, you feel like you have no control over your life. Um, those are some big red flags, and shame is another one. Of the, if you're you're very ashamed of what your partner does to you, says to you, I mean that's a bit that's a huge red flag, and I just don't think we pay attention to some of that. And blame, shame, guilt, you know, with with getting help for uh, substance use, you know, like you said, um, stalking, partner crime, uh, child abuse. These manifest themselves in a lot of similar ways, and. Uh, not only does it take a toll at the time, but the lasting effects uh, of coming to terms with it, pointing things, you know, the shame and guilt at yourself. Uh, it's, it's awful that what people have to go through and try and come out on the other side. So this reminds me, I don't know. Have you seen the Ted talk by Brene Brown? Oh yeah. On shame. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, just the power of, of being able to talk to people and to, to put it into words and realize, you know, this happens to a lot of people. All these things happen to a lot of people, but when it's happening to you, you feel like you're the only one in the world or you feel like there's just something wrong with you and um, just starting to open up to, to find that right level of support. And there's the, you know, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. If you don't want to go anywhere local, you can call them. You can text them. Love is respect. If you, you can chat, you know, with them if you don't even feel like calling and just trying to, you know, just say, hey, here's what ha- what's happening and I really don't know what to think about it. You know, just starting those conversations is so important. Well, it's an important topic, and I think this shed a lot of light for hopefully uh, a lot of people on on how they can uh, how these things happen and, and manifest themselves. So, uh, I, I want to thank you for your time. All right, thank you. Okay.
for shedding some light on this. It's really important. I appreciate all you're doing. Yep. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.